It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. of the false revenge have struck us once again as the angry seas have struck upon the sand and it seemed as though a friendless world had lost itself a friend that was the president and that was the man Oh, I still can see him smiling there and waving at the crowd As he drove through the music of the band And never even knowing no more time would be allowed Not for the president and not for the man this is Here's Phil Ox singing That Here's Was the President. You know, it's funny. A lot of different incidents happen in American history. And I was thinking about this this weekend as I was uh, pouring over all of these uh, JFK assassination documents that were released or unredacted on Friday. And I'm thinking to myself, why almost 60 years after this one incident, tragic as it is, why do we still talk about this? Why do we still care about this? Um, because we see these numbers of um, what segments get downloads, what segments get uh, streaming numbers. And for whatever reason, whenever we do anything related to the Kennedy assassination, the streaming numbers go through the roof. The podcast downloads go through the roof. And I'm thinking to myself, what is it about this incident? There's a lot of tragic incidents. We talk about a lot of different things. Why this? And I came to the conclusion, and I have no idea if this is accurate. We may ask our next guest what his take on this is. But we came to the, I came to the conclusion that, one, I think that the Kennedy assassination for people that lived through it really sort of symbolized the day that America lost its innocence, that this was a wake-up call for America – that we that the world was a really cruel place. Now, the world was just as cruel on December 1st of 1963 as it was on August 1st of 1963. But I think it kind of forced people to stand up and take note. The other reason that I think so many people are interested in this subject and have been since 1963 is because there has never really been a wide acceptance of what was originally the official story, that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. Someone who has uh, raised and analyzed some of those questions is Martin K.A. Morgan. Martin K.A. Morgan is a, a terrific author and historian who specializes in American and military history. He's written several books. He's uh, been featured regularly on the History Channel. Also happens to be a, a bit of a firearms historian as well, who has encyclopedic knowledge of the AR-15. Martin, it's great to talk with you. Thanks for joining me on the radio. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on, Frank. So let me begin with the beginning. I'm going to get your take on the uh, the documents that have been released and the battle over these documents. But 
Um, the official story that Oswald acted alone, the story that the Warren Commission put out there, do you uh, do you have any reason to doubt that story? I don't really, and I feel like this recent document production is going to underscore that story to a certain extent because one thing that is expected to come out of this production of additional new document, 13,173 new unredacted documents, um, what, what we expect to come out of it, one detail that we're kind of anticipating is that it's going to um, offer some incriminating evidence that the FBI was aware of Lee Harvey Oswald, was aware that he was a threat to the president, uh, was aware that he had, in fact, threatened the president and that they were watching him and that in, that's information that um, has not been disclosed to the public because of the way that the documents were previously redacted. Uh, there, one of the interesting theories, and it was covered in the uh, book Mortal Error 30 years ago, and it's been written about elsewhere. One of the uh, theories that I've heard that some people have subscribed to over the years is that President Kennedy might have been mistakenly shot by Secret Service agent George Hickey in 1963. I'm sure, I know that you've looked at this. What is your evaluation on that theory of the Secret Service agent actually killing Kennedy and not Oswald? What first appealed to me about the theory presented in Mortal Error was the fact that the ballistic performance of the AR-15 that was involved um, would have matched exactly what we're seeing in the footage that Abraham Zapruder filmed that day, um, particularly this this intensely destructive and um, lethal strike to the head that could have been caused by a high-velocity small-caliber bullet uh, to the likes of a 55-grain bullet fired by an early AR-15. And Part of the reason that I found the theory to be compelling is that I have overwhelmingly found that previous discussions of all of the firearms that were involved in the assassination from Oswald's firearm, um, um, a Carcano Model 9138 uh, carbine, from that all the way up to the pistol that Oswald used to murder uh, George Tippett. Um, the, I found that there was kind of a lacking of competence in a lot of that discussion. You add to that um, the great complicating wild card in the form of the Oliver Stone movie, which just really poorly portrayed things like ballistics and the firearms that were involved. I find the mortal error theory to be a little compelling because the AR-15 could very well have done what we're seeing in the Zapruder film. Uh, so why has that? Why was that theory, the the um, George Hickey Secret Service agent AR-15 theory? Some people say he lost his balance and accidentally squeezed the trigger. Some say he didn't even squeeze the trigger, and the the weapon might have fired uh, without him squeezing the trigger. Why was that not taken more seriously by, say, the Warren Commission or other investigators that have investigated this? Warren Commission doesn't investigate this at all. Warren Co Commission was aware of the fact that there was an AR-15 in Dealey Plaza that day, uh, but they they didn't inspect the firearm. In fact, there's no record of the serial number of the firearm, and that sounds like a meaningless detail, but that's actually quite important when you consider that 219 days before the assassination, President Kennedy had appeared in the Oval Office with a U.S. Army general who was his aide, uh, during which G President Kennedy is seen inspecting what we believe to be the actual rifle that Hickey was using that day in Dallas. Uh, so the serial number would help us I'd confirm that. At any rate, um, 
one of the details of the early development of the AR-15 is that this was a firearm unlike anything the world had ever seen. This was a firearm that was producing lethality unlike previous generations of firearms. Previous generations that had focused and concentrated more on heavier bullets moving at speeds more like 2,700 feet per second. Um, the AR-15, in contrast, was accelerating a much smaller bullet, a 55-grain bullet, um, to a speed of approaching 3,300 feet per second, which is a, an absolute breakneck speed, which changes all of the physics involved in the movement of the projectile and, and provides the projectile with greatly enhanced lethality. There was, at the time that Warren Commission was convened, there was little to no knowledge about the AR-15. Mm. There was almost none, and it's because it was a new firearm. In fact, the weapon had only been developed beginning in 1957. Um, the production of the prototype rifles continued through to 1959. And then the, the, the production of the, of the first mass-producible version of the AR-15, which was about the 22nd iteration moving through a, a moving through a batch of about 20 or so prototypes before they got to a final production model. That very model didn't last long. Only 14,000 examples were produced between late 1959 and mid-1962. And those firearms were still so brand new that people were consistently misidentifying them. In fact, at Warren Commission, there was a point of confusion where civilians who were present in Dealey Plaza would ultimately testify to seeing a Secret Service agent with a Thompson submachine gun. There were no Thompson submachine guns in Dealey Plaza that day. We know that. There was, however, an AR-15, but no one knew what it was. Mm. None of the members of the commission would have known what this firearm was. The firearm was only just in the two entering the service of the United States Air Force. It had not yet entered the United States Army service. The Army wouldn't begin purchasing the weapon until the following year. And so the weapon was largely an, uh, an unknown, even at the time that the, that the Warren Commission was convened. There was very little known about the weapon. And it, if you have a close read of Mortal Error, the, the book is presenting this theory that the reason that it doesn't come up at Warren Commission is because of the fact that there was a conspiracy on the part of the members of the Secret Service to conceal mm. the fact that a, an AR-15 had been discharged that day. And if they had a reason to conceal that um, and a negligent well, I, I discharge the, that led. The reason yeah. would be, yeah. uh, just so folks understand the mentality of people that want to want to keep that from coming to, to light. I guess the the reason would be to not make the Secret Service a, look like they're incompetent and uh, are incapable of protecting presidents instead of killing them. Precisely. That is precisely why. And and George Hickey is no longer alive. And this is the agent that is at the center of this theory. Um, and George Hickey opposed the circulation of this theory once the book was published to the point where there was a, a lawsuit that basically had the book withdrawn until after his death. And one detail that is critical to understanding this formula effectively is that Hickey may have done this, may have experienced a negligent discharge without having even placed his finger on the trigger of the firearm. And that's because that very first mass production model of the AR-15 rifle, um, the model that was the model number assigned to it at Colt's patent firearms when it went into mass production was the model 601. 
The Model 601, which lasts only from late 59 to mid 62, it had a high mass firing pin. And one of the problems encountered that would lead ultimately to a change of the, of the design of the firing pin was that the mass of the firing pin was sufficient um, at, to cause the inadvertent discharge of a cartridge in the chamber just by virtue of the mass of the firing pin moving forward with the, mo the momentum of the bolt moving forward. In other words, if, if someone placed a magazine inside of the weapon when the bolt was held in the rear position by the bolt stop, and then they pressed the bolt stop to release the bolt chamber around, that bolt would move forward with so much force and the, the high mass firing pin would be thrown forward by the momentum of its mass uh, with such force that it could set off a cartridge. Uh, that model of firing pin was changed in the following model, the model that we call the Model 602 that was introduced in July of 1962. And that's the same the, the same profile of firing pin that remains in all of the M16 AR15 derivatives that are still in service to this day. But they had to move away from this initial high mass firing pin that was introduced with the 601 because it was periodically firing cartridges without the operator even touching the trigger. Interesting. Uh, that is uh, wild and really does seem to off solve a lot of mysteries and offer a lot of explanations including why the bullet wounds in Kennedy's head point more towards kind of an AR-15 style bullet than the one that uh, Oswald purportedly had fired. If people are just tuning in, by the way, we're talking with Martin K.A. Morgan. He's written several books. He's a regular on the History Channel, Discovery Channel, National Geographic. If you need a historian that not only sounds like he knows what he's talking about, but looks good on television, Martin K.A. Morgan is at the top of everybody's list. Martin, uh, the, the Congressional Committee that looked into the assassination post-Warren Commission in the 70s, did they look at this theory that it might have been the Secret Service that killed Kennedy accidentally? They did not. This is completely absent from Warren Commission and House Select Committee. This, the theory doesn't come up until um, Bonner Manager publishes his book, Mortal Error. And he only published that book because he began interacting with a man named Howard Donahue. And Howard Donahue was central to um, Kennedy assassination as a, subject, as a general subject because he was one of the marksmen who had participated at the FBI range um, in the evaluation to determine whether or not it was physically possible for someone to deliver the course of fire that was believed to have been delivered. You might remember that at Warren Commission, um, the information is presented about Oswald and his three shots. There were questions about whether or not those three shots could be completed in the amount of time that they were completed. And eventually, as a result of the House Select Committee, they brought in um, a, a series of marksmen who attempted to duplicate those shots in the same amount of time that Oswald supposedly delivered them, to the extent that they even set up a course with a moving target. And Howard Donahue was the only person who completed the course of fire com and completed it just as Oswald had. Um, that made him, I think that invested him with a little, little bit of expertise um, in, in commenting on the matter. And it was him who eventually began to consider the possibility of a negligent discharge on the part of one of the Secret Service agents um, that struck the president in the back of the head and actually killed him. And 
part of his expertise in that was that in later years, he was operating a gun store. He was operating a gun store when the Colt AR-15 as a commercially available firearm to civilians was circulating broadly and um, it was experiencing a great deal of popularity in the country. And, and Donahue, in years after the um, stretching from the 70s and into the 80s, as he gained more and more experience with the AR-15, he began to think that this might actually be the firearm that did it. That is uh, really interesting. I know that you indicated that uh, the Secret Service agent, Mr. Hickey, didn't want this book out there, that there was a lawsuit to stop the publication of Mortal Error. Did Hickey ever, um, not responding to this theory, did he ever give his own account of what occurred and what he witnessed on the day of the assassination? Hickey gave a very cursory interview to Warren Commission. It's not very detailed, and it was obvious in reading that record that they weren't even thinking of this idea of, well, maybe one of the Secret Service agents experienced a negligent discharge, and maybe that contributed to what happened. That wasn't even on the docket. They weren't even looking at that as a possibility. And in fact, nobody was considering that as a possibility um, until the book came out in 1992. And... No sooner had the book come out than the book was ultimately withdrawn, and it just kind of went away. Copies had circulated, so there were there were copies of it out there. And in fact, a friend of mine gave me a copy and invited me to have a look at it and read it. And just with some experience owning and shooting AR-15 rifles, to to include spending some time with the Colt Model 601, which is the exact type of rifle that Hickey had in Dealey Plaza. Um, with that that experience, I then read the book, and it. It's it came to me it came to me as slightly compelling. Mm. And it certainly doesn't seem more ridiculous than some of the other theories that I've heard about what happened that day. Uh, that's absolutely right. So given the the credibility that this theory has, what should be the next step in this? Does it matter? Are we at the point where we should let sleeping dogs lie or should there be some official entity that says, yes, this is what occurred. Let's at least look into it and see if this is what occurred. What a cool question, because the what I think should happen is that there should be a full of a, a more expansive in, investigation. I realize that's probably a hard car to sell right now, because after Warren Commission, after the House Select Committee, after everything that has happened since, I think Sometimes I'm led to think that maybe people have reached their limit in terms of considering possible theories about the Kennedy assassination. But based on um, your preamble as we began this uh, the broadcast, it sounds like the popularity is out there. It sounds like this is a topic that people can't get enough of. And since that might be the case, one point I love to bring out when I, whenever I, I talk about the subject is – the the president's brain, as ghoulish and as fiendish as this might sound, the president's brain would be a very, very important piece of physical evidence that would tell us very important things about the bullet that struck him in the head. And as you well know, the president's brain mysteriously disappeared shortly after his autopsy, mm. and it has never been seen since. It's so interesting. It seems to me like if this theory were more widely adopted, this might actually scratch the itch from the people that believe that Oswald was a lone gunman and that Kennedy was not killed by the CIA, the mob, Castro or the Russians. 
but it will also scratch the itch of a lot of the conspiracy theorists that look at the forensics and say that doesn't add up and also look at the lengths that uh, someone went to to have a cover-up afterwards, and it would seem to scratch that itch as well. It would seem like this theory, the theory that Secret Service agent Hickey accidentally uh, uh, fired the bullet or maybe not even fired it, but his weapon discharged, that that killed Kennedy, that that would uh, satiate a lot of people out there. It really does sort of explain everything in a way. And just for the record, I'm speaking to you from Tanchpaho Parish, Louisiana right now. I live within about 15 miles of Covington, Louisiana, which is a place where Lee Harvey Oswald lived early in his life, lived with his mother. And just living in the greater New Orleans area like I do, I've been living here for 25 years, you get kind of used to running into, encountering people that experienced Lee Harvey Oswald back in the day. And there are landmarks around the greater New Orleans area of Lee Harvey Oswald and his weird and bizarre life. And the more time I have spent here and I've encountered people who had face-to-face interactions with him or people that knew him, the more it convinces me that he was this bizarre misfit with delusions of grandeur who imagined himself as being a revolutionary comparable to Che Guevara or to Fidel Castro. And imagine the frustration of the of the the disappointed revolutionary who can't quite get things off the ground who can't quite get the world to pay attention to him this theory helps me understand that better living here you just kind of get this broader profile of lee harvey oswald the bizarre misfit and then when you consider um, what could have happened that day at Dealey Plaza, if you believe mortal error, is that the the misfit with delusions of grandeur attempted to assassinate a president, and it set in motion this wild chain of events that were sort of beyond everyone's control that might have included a Secret Service agent with a hmm. brand new weapon, a weapon that absolutely nobody even knew what it was because it was so foreign and new, and that that agent in trying to seat a bullet to return fire after the motorcade drove into this ambush. That weapon might have experienced um, a a discharge that was unintentional, that then struck the president, and then all manner of chaos erupts. If if you're ever interested in looking into it more, there's a series of famous images that capture this. Um, There's even a piece of film footage that captures it. The famous Bronson footage is a color film motion picture footage clip that captures the the motorcade from the other side of Dealey Plaza, the opposite side of where Abraham Zapruder was located. And that footage, in that footage, you can clearly see Agent Hickey has the weapon out and is brandishing the weapon in Dealey Plaza. Uh, There are several still photographs that depict Agent Hickey wielding his AR-15 in the immediate aftermath of leaving Dealey Plaza, as they travel down Elm before they turn onto the Stimmons Freeway, a series of stills are taken, one of which is the McIntyre photograph. And the McIntyre photograph captures two two DPD-mounted police officers on motorcycles in the foreground, the two limousines of the presidential motorcade are in the distance, and you can see everyone, and you can clearly see Hickey brandishing the AR-15, and all of the other agents are looking at him, and everyone looks even though it's at a distance, it looks tense, and it almost looks like everyone's maybe even shouting at Hickey. Then when you add to that, there are these series of 
peculiar and puzzling photographs taken at Parkland Memorial Hospital, particularly one where maybe you're aware of the sequence of events that unfolds there, and that is that the presidential limousine pulls up, they take the president into the ER. Um, minutes go by, and then eventually Agent Hickey himself is sent outside where the presidential limousine is there with all manner of crime scene evidence splattered across it. And Agent Hickey puts the roof up on the limo, gets a mop and a sponge, and begins washing all of this forensic evidence off of the limousine, which is something that you clearly wouldn't be doing if you were attempting to conduct Mm. a proper investigation. So it's a completely – so the limousine is a completely contaminated crime scene where there's absolutely no useful evidence that could have been recovered from it because when they got to Parkland, everything was kind of washed off. And you add to that, there is a photo that shows Hickey himself just as he walked outside. Well, he had walked outside, put the roof up on the limo, and he's turning to go get something to wash the limo up. And he's sort of pushing his hair back, and you can see he has this very distraught look on his face. It almost looks like the man is in tears. Now, granted, he's been through a lot during the last few minutes. Uh, But that piece of evidence, I think it takes on an entirely new life once you've read Mortal Error and you consider this theory. Because if that man had experienced a negligent discharge, that would have been no fault of his own, by the way. It would have been a a, a a problem with the weapon, a weapon defect. Uh, If that had happened and he had been holding the firearm, those other agents in the McIntyre photo, they would have been like, what were you doing? What happened? And And he would have been arguing back, the gun just went off. And if then you get to the hospital and you're thinking, the president president's going to die because of what just happened and everybody thinks I did it and it was my fault and I I didn't do it you would look distraught you would you would look like the man that is in this famous photograph and it all it all sort of piles up and points into a direction that I think um, encourages all of us. It, it admonishes all of us to take the mortal error theory a little bit more seriously. Uh, uh, two final questions here, Martin, and you got to come back because there's a lot of other issues, not necessarily related to this, but just in general that I'd love to pick your brain on. But one is uh, one of the questions that I've been asking consistently over the course of the last four years is why has the government, under Democratic administrations, Republican administrations, with a wide variety of excuses, why has the government been so fastidious in fighting the release of these documents that are uh, over 60 years old? And the various excuses they use, COVID, national security, they don't really seem to hold water with me. And I'm wondering, do you think that the government's desire to um, avoid having the Secret Service blamed for killing JFK, do you think that could be part of the reason why the government has fought so hard to keep so many of these documents secret? Well, you know, it certainly does look suspicious, all of it, doesn't it? I, I, I admit to having been sort of lured into that sort of um, uh, suspicious thinking myself. Um, the official line that the government is now presenting, and they presented it last week on the 15th when they released 13,000 new documents or released 13,000 changes in redaction. The, the, the excuse that they're now presenting, which I do find a little bit compelling, and that excuse is, well, hey, these redactions had to remain in place as long as they did because these redactions were protecting CIA and FBI agents who needed to remain nameless, and they were people who were still alive. That I can sort of understand. I can, ref- I can respect that to a certain degree. I could also see why the government, why it would benefit the government to protect or to, to control information that might make the FBI 
um, not look great. The FBI was investigating Lee Harvey Oswald. And I believe that some of these redactions are going to reveal that the extent to which they were watching him was far greater than we've previously considered. And so, yeah, there are two plausible cover stories at work there. One being we got to protect the names of people who had to work in uh, clandestine and espionage services. So we have to protect those individuals. I can understand that. I can understand also and a an interest in protecting the FBI from experiencing the embarrassment and having to explain the reasons why it did not take threats from people like Lee Harvey Oswald more seriously. But at the same time, these redactions and the fact that they just persisted for decade after decade, all they did was throw red meat to the conspiracy theorists. And I admit that I'm one of them because the, the suspicious quality of these redactions certainly made mm -hmm. me consider other possibilities. Absolutely. Hey, we're going to have to end it there. Martin, great conversation. I'll look forward to the next time we get to speak. I'll look forward to that too, Frank. Thank Thanks you. for having me on. Thank you. You can check out Martin's website, martinkamorgan.com, spelled exactly as it sounds, martinkamorgan.com. We'll take your calls uh, in just a moment, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. midnight. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.